I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 226. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. Well, Valerie, on today's show, we're going to be answering questions about whether glycerin is bad for curly hair, whether encapsulated ingredients make the products work better, if scalp exfoliators work, whether beauty companies can hide allergens in their products, and... What is the difference between organic DHA and non-organic DHA products? Oh, some great questions. Yeah, yeah, lots of questions. Plus, we're going to cover some beauty science news. But first, as always, I like to uh, chat with Valerie. So how's it going, Valerie? It's going good. Everything's great. Well, that's good because last time you were a little, you were a little off, and you were uh, working a lot. You're still working a lot, I guess. Oh, still working a lot. Um, in LA, we have this weather system called June Gloom, and it it basically means that in the morning, your the sky will be cloudy and overcast, maybe a little precipitation. Precipitation being a loose term, it's kind of like just damp air, basically. Yeah, but that's considered rain in California. And in the afternoon by 1 p.m., it burns off to reveal a sunny sky. And uh, I always get like headaches during June gloom. So it's kind of like, bleh. but tomorrow's July 1st. So hopefully it's gone. You know, it's uh, almost halfway through today. I did 181 push-ups. Um, I'm, I'm on this, uh, I don't know if I tell you about this goal. I start at the beginning of the year. I do one push up every single day, one extra a day. So yeah. January 1st, you do one, then you do two the next day. And today I did 181. Right. Cause today's the 181st day of the year. It is. Although we yeah. don't like to date our podcast like that. Cause not people know. Yeah. Well, you know, you can cut that out if you want. But um, I only know th- what day of the year it is because that's how we do our batch coding system for our hair color production. Oh, really? So somebody could somebody could take a product and look at it, and there's going to be, what, 181 on there? And they'll know that was made in late June? Yep. Well, if they if they know the Julian dating system, then yes. <laughs> Julian dating. That's different from the Gregorian dating system? Or- <laughs> yeah, I think it's called the Julian calendar system. Yeah. Something like that. But um, yeah, so if people know the code, they could know that. That's actually how we know what day and what shift it was. There's some other numbers with it. That's part of the coding. But that's how we know when to go back and look at our records. It's interesting when at Alberta, when I was working there, we had the same sort of coding system. So if you if you knew the date, you could look at the date code stamp and figure out the day of the year it was produced and what time so we had three shifts so the first mm-hmm. second third shift and you yep. could tell which shift it was produced on too yeah so. so i don't know if we've ever actually talked batch codes on the podcast before i know we've talked about there's like an app you can use and you could put the batch code in and get an expiration date out of it maybe but so a batch code is something that's required on all products manufactured in the u.s and it's usually ink jetted with a little printer onto the bottom yeah. it's usually on the bottom most brands try to get it out of the way if it's a tube it's in the reverse of the crimp or it could be printed just anywhere on the tube. 
But this is, so a manufacturer has traceability for products. So if you have an adverse reaction or there's mold in your product or just anything happens, you can contact the right. manufacturer, give them this inkjetted code or code that's embossed into the, into the packaging, and they can trace it back to what day was it made, what shift was it made on, even what tank was it made on, what line was it yeah. made on. There's lots of things. Every company has a different batch coding system, so all of the codes will kind of look different, but um, yeah, that's a thing. Some are actually better than others. I, I don't imagine like the the tiny stuff you buy on Etsy if somebody produces it in their kitchen is probably not putting a batch code on there. Well, they should because you know if something happens, <laughs> they have to trace back like, well, what raw materials did I use and who was working on this shift? Oh, it was third shift. Were they sleeping right. again? I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a little joke in the industry that everything always happens on third shift. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, look at that. Our chit chat actually turned into some useful information for yeah. people. Yeah, <laughs> that's figure. great. All right. How about we move on to our beauty science news? What have you seen this week, Perry? You know, the first story that I saw was that the sunscreen ban was lifted in Florida. Well, that is unusual. That's big news. You remember um, a little while back, here's what happened. Hawaii went through and banned sunscreen, specific sunscreen ingredients, um, including um, oxybenzone and octinoxate. And those are sunscreens that they're uh, approved sunscreens in the U.S. by the FDA. Uh, They will block UVB rays. Uh, they're effective, so. Um, but Hawaii, based on some research study or, or and some, you know, aggressive lobbying of the government, they somebody claimed that those two particular ingredients were bleaching coral and they were particularly bad for coral, and that led to Hawaii, the state of Hawaii, to ban those particular ingredients. And then there were a couple of places in Florida that followed suit. Um, Key West uh, banned it. um, And I think there was another place in Florida looking to ban these sunscreens. But I know Key West, the the provincial government of Key West, so the town mayor and such, they banned it in Key West. Well, it turns out that the governor in Florida uh, looked at that and said, like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So they passed a law in Florida to override any bans that a, a local place like a town in Florida might ban a place. And and the governor has said, yeah, these bans do not count. Why would they have made the reversal? I know we've alluded to it a bit in previous episodes, but can you remind everyone why you think that may be? Well, I think uh, on, on some level, I mean, it's, it gets into politics, but... Uh, you can imagine the, the the people who want to sell sunscreens, they don't want to s- stop using this ingredient because it's very difficult to make uh, a, a, a particularly feeling sunscreen if you're not able to use these ingredients. I mean, ultimately, you ban these two ingredients, the only thing you're left with is zinc oxide avobenzone. That's, you know, you're really limited to what you can create. So that's going to cut out a lot of existing sunscreens. So you can imagine somebody lobbying the governor saying, hey, this science is no good. Uh, you should override these things. And, uh, you know, with enough money, I guess you can get people to override stuff. 
Now, I will say that these bands, to me, were not were not scientifically based. There was one study that demonstrated in a fish aquarium at these certain levels, you could show some detrimental effect to coral. Nobody's ever shown that um, these ingredients are particularly bad for coral out in the wild. Um, and really, the biggest problem with uh, bleaching of coral is due to the pH change of the ocean. It's not, it has nothing to do with sunscreens. But like we said, I think it was last episode, you know, the the beauty industry is uh, is one of the industries that uh, government likes to, or not even just the government, just NGOs and everybody likes to kind of bash on the, the beauty industry just because and they're small and they're looked at as frivolous products. But I do not believe that banning these ingredients is going to have any demonstrable benefit to the coral reefs. Uh, you know, and uh, I guess the governor in Florida does uh, agree with that. Although I have to say it's probably he got lobbied pretty hard by the, <laughs> by the sunscreen industry. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's good that kind of in a way science prevails, right? At least in this case. It's very rarely a ban gets reversed like that. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I didn't really have any news, but I do want to start a new segment. I don't know how often we'll do it, but heard on Instagram. And you, I don't know how often you're on Instagram, but I get pushed pretty hard on the ads. Yes. If you read the privacy <laughs> policy, when you agree to use the Instagram app and have your microphone on, uh, you uh, also agree to have them record your voice, even when you're not oh, using the app. It's in the in wow. the policy. Yeah. Also, lesser known fact: the Bitmoji application. A lot of people have these Bitmojis. If you look, you give Bitmoji permission to access your keyboard at all times, whatever you type. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I, I'm always a big checker of privacy, but I'm aware Instagram is doing this, so I don't mind anyway. Because sometimes, you know, I get recommended cool stuff, and I'm like, cool, I can I can buy that. Well, one of our listeners. Jackie. Um, she's great. She is always sending me text messages. I actually know her from the industry and we we turned her onto the podcast a while back and she is obsessed with it and tells everyone she knows. And even uh, a couple weeks ago, she was like, two people are now listening to your show as of just from one day. So (laughs) it's fantastic. So Jackie, thank you. Uh, but Jackie sent this to me on her Instagram account. She, she must've been talking sunscreen to somebody because product came up called sun armor and i'd like to read the ad to you perry all right no grease no mess no toxic chemicals sun armor strengthens your skin on the molecular level to better resist the sun's rays just try it with no strings attached for 30 days can you guess what it is Uh, it sounds like a supplement to me (laughs) yeah it is a sunscreen pill oh my god okay why why mess with greasy toxic chemicals you know, like oxybenzone or octanoxate that are just going to hurt the coral reefs when you can pop a pill and uh, and get your sun protection. Well, I have to say, in theory, I, this would be awesome, right? <laughs> yeah. Who, who, well, who especially for put... you. Who wants to spray sunscreen on their face? Right. Who who wants to use, you know, you know, the, I, you know, I go go- golfing is when I put most sunscreen on and it's just like, I don't like the way sunscreen feels on my arm. I go running. I put on sunscreen. It, it like it leaks into my eyes and it stings. I I'm not a big fan, but you know I still I'm I'm a, a less of a fan of skin cancer. So of course I'm gonna use yeah. it. But if you could have a a pill that you just take the pill and 
it takes care of it. That would be great. Yeah, so it relies on an extract, Polypodium leucotomos extract. It's an active ingredient um, found from an extract in the tropical fern of the rainforests of Central and South America. Whoa, sounds exotic. They cite the American Academy of Dermatology, their main understanding that this extract acts as an antioxidant, so it protects the skin from oxidative damage caused by sun exposure. Huh. Additionally, there have been studies from Harvard University that found that oral intake was associated with a significant decrease in UV-related skin damage. And it sounds like on, a weak. It sounds like a weak claim associated with. Yeah, I feel like. Why would like they just say it reduces it? It's a bit of a stretch to take a couple studies that have been published on this extract, which I don't know where these studies have been published. I can't say if they're right. reputable yeah. journals. And then create a product and say it's a clinically proven oral supplement that works at the cellular level to protect your skin from damaging UV rays. I don't know. It's just a bit strong for me. And, uh, you know, UV protectants are heavily regulated by the FDA. So I'm really surprised that they can get away with some of the things that they're saying. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how they do, Valerie. If you look at their website, and that's the GetSunArmor.com, at the really at the bottom, it says these statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. <laughs> because it's a supplement, right? Oh this my gosh. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and results may not be typical. So. Yeah, so this is a su- true supplement in that sense because the supplement industry ha- has its own set of regulations. Yeah, and you have which are if, which are none. But yeah, but, and yeah. if you haven't checked out season two of the podcast, The Dream, uh, which yes. one of our fans <laughs> turned us on to, they really uh, go over wellness and yeah, um, the supplement and supplements specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah very interesting. Um, just about how they're able to sell products the way that they do. Um, but wow. I, you know, this, this story did prompt me to take a look at what the FDA has to say about uh, tanning pills. And <laughs> specifically, they say um, tanning pills are not approved by the FDA. Now, those are tanning pills. Uh, they didn't say anything about sunscreen pills. UV damage protection pills. Right. Um, but... People are looking for a magic pill that will help them achieve the uh, minimal exposure to UV. There are no such pills approved for this purpose. So yeah, it just feels if he if the company was just selling them, I would be like, okay, they're selling them, whatever. But it just feels a little gimmicky, like no strings attached, thirty day supply for free, you know, or whatever, whatever. It's like just feels a little gimmicky, right? Well, you know, all of those subscription services to supplements and beauty products, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, wary of those 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 uh, subscription services like that. I, yeah. I, don't I don't think they're good for consumers. Yeah. Well, if you guys are on Instagram and you see anything crazy, um, send it to us or send it to me. I'm cosmetic underscore chemist. I, I love to see yeah. just what crazy stuff people are posting. You know, I have to tell you, I am on Instagram. Uh, I have I have the Joggler account, which is me. But, you know, of course, and I monitor the Beauty Brains account. But I've tried to, I've shied, shied away from Instagram and social media in general. It just, it's been making me feel bad. So. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> of stuff on there. I, just, I don't like things that make me feel bad. You know, like, yeah. Like, I feel, 
inadequate that I'm not posting enough and I'm not engaged enough. Yeah, like, and I'd like to apologize to everyone. My job is to post on the Beauty Brains Instagram, and I've just been really slammed at work. Uh, so I apologize, but I'll get back to posting. I promise. Um, no, answering just, all your questions. It's it's totally. I, and I like the engagement, but uh, boy, I, you know, I really had to cut back on Facebook. Cause yeah. <laughs> There are people I used to like, and then I read their Facebook stuff, and I'm like, I don't like you anymore. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, depressing. I just remember that everyone's entitled to their own views, and are, yes. I just look past it, you know, just like, you know, anything else at work when people say stuff. But um, yeah. you're on Twitter quite a bit, right, still? I am I am on Twitter, yeah. Twitter does not make me feel as bad, although I had to unfollow, like, all of the uh, political discussions that I see. I'm, I'm just there to talk about cosmetic science and, you know, just... Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm copacetic with a lot of political opinions. I just don't want to keep reading them because it just makes me mad. Yeah. Uh, well, even if you're not on social media, I know you're live and active on the web. You have a webinar coming up, right? I do have a webinar. I'm, I'm uh, doing a webinar for the International Federation of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, um, and it's about cosmetic formulating. If you're interested in learning how to make cosmetics, uh, I'm going to include a link in the show notes, but you can uh, sign up and register. That will be on July 8th, so that'll be a lot of fun. That's cool that you can invite uh, all of our fans. I know that we do get a lot of requests when we talk about different trade shows and events we go to. We do actually get a lot of inquiries from people. Hey, how can I go to these events too? And if you're not in the industry, it's pretty tough, but that's awesome that you can extend this invitation to anyone who would like to come. Yeah, there's a, there is a room limit of like 2,000 people and we're probably going to hit that. But Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, everyone <laughs> register get on early, early first. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Get on early. All right, shall we do some beauty uh, science questions? Yeah. Our first question comes from Twitter, and it's from Jasmine. You know, Jasmine posted on Twitter. We don't we don't get a lot of interaction with the beauty brains on Twitter, and I I was looking and I I observed the Twitter. I followed the Twitter for beauty brains, and then I saw this question was posted there. I'm like, oh yeah, there you go. You, you we get you get an answer because you're the only question there. So there yeah, great. So if you want to get your question answered quickly, throw it on Twitter. <laughs> Well, Jasmine says, I've noticed that many curly hair products contain glycerin, but I frequently see information online stating glycerin is bad for curly hair, especially in both dry or humid climates. That doesn't leave a lot of in-between. Is there any truth to this? Ah, glycerin in, uh, glycerin in products. I mean, it's great for skin care. Yeah. I, I, in hair care, I don't, I don't know. Well, glycerin is added for a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, glycerin helps with the stability of a formulation, so... A lot of times right. chemists are only worried about heat uh, with their formulas. Heat can accelerate the movement of the molecules and then the product will separate or have some other instability forming. But I always get on my chemists at work, hey, have you thrown this guy in the freezer? Because a lot of formulas yeah. are not stable at zero degrees either. You can get some enhanced stability in the freeze cycles when adding glycerin to the formula. They help alter that freeze point. So I think that's at least in rinse off products. I think that's why it's used a lot. At least that's yeah. why I use it because at the end of the day, the glycerin just goes down the drain, right? So if you're seeing glycerin in a shampoo or a conditioner or anything else that rinses off, Jasmine, I don't think you have to worry about it. You're totally going to be fine. In leave-in products, glycerin can be used for the feel 
of the hair. It can, I think it's especially used actually in curlier hair products uh, just because of the way it, it helps manipulate the fiber. Glycerin mm-hmm. does draw moisture to the hair and it could be helpful for curly hair in that it could help reduce the brittleness. Even in dry climates, uh, the, the glycerin is going to help improve the hair fiber feel and add some flexibility to it. Now, we're not talking a lot. It's very small amounts in yeah, Levon products course, yeah. because I would say even 1% of glycerin is a ton in a Levon product on hair. So if you're finding it, it's probably not in there a lot. I know that some people don't like glycerin in skincare in really dry climates because glycerin is hygroscopic, meaning it attracts water. And um, typically in a humid climate, glycerin will attract water out of the air to the skin. And that's a great thing, right? Your skin's hydrated. Um, In super dry climates, they say that glycerin can actually draw water out of the skin because there's more water in the skin than in the air and your skin can actually get drier. In the case of hair, I actually don't, think that's the case it's not right it's not really as noticeable because there's a limited water content availability um in the hair anyway so it's not gonna draw it's not gonna draw water out of the hair fiber onto the surface in the same way as it might draw uh water out of the skin uh, to the surface so it's not the same at all yeah however in high humidity situations you may experience a little more frizz but Typically, like glycerin's not the main thing in there. Again, it's in at very tiny levels in these products, uh, just because a little bit of glycerin goes a long way, especially yeah. in a leave-on. So, right. I don't think you have to worry. I, th- I think there's tons of other stuff you can worry about. I'm just kidding. And but- another- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, another problem with glycerin is it can be a little sticky, right? Yeah, and that's where. Um, it just doesn't feel great on the hair. So in a leave-on formula, honestly, I, I barely use any if I use it. And um, again, it's only to help like the freezing situation out. Um, I wouldn't really use it for attractive properties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing that you use glycerin for in a formula, if you have a pump formula, you know how sometimes if you have a pump formula, like the, the product will like solidify in the mm-hmm, pump and then mm-hmm. you squeeze it out and it, it shoots under your shirt. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> but you throw a little glycerin in that formula, and then it's going to stay, it is going to stay like, it's not going to solidify in the pump. And so that's going to. Yeah. I hate when there. a hard, waxy chunk clogs everything. <laughs> hard, waxy chunk. I used to be in a band called Hard, Waxy Chunk. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what my hairstyling products make uh, look like that I make. <laughs> Are we ready for the next question? Yeah. (laughs) All right. This question comes to us from Jen. Uh, This is an email. Jen says, I'm not sure if you've heard about the Susan Yara and her new skincare brand, Naturium. Yep. I'm going to spare you the details regarding her controversial launch, but I was wondering about something that she mentions about the products. She says that 22% vitamin C is encapsulated in gold, making it more gentle on the skin. Later, she talks about retinol being encapsulated, but she doesn't explain what it's encapsulated in. Do you think encapsulated is more of a buzzword, or is she using this correctly? She also talks about the photostable retinol. Is that a thing? Thanks so much for your help, and I never want to spread misinformation, so it's wonderful that I can use you guys as a source. Well, thanks for that, Jen. Thank you, Jen. Um, Perry, do you know about the controversy? 
you know, I did stumble on the controversy, watched a couple of uh, a couple yeah. of videos on it, but uh, yeah. why don't you explain it a little bit? Yeah, so I actually know Susan. Uh, she's been a longtime okay. follow, follower of me on Twitter. Actually, she was oh. one of my first Twitter followers going back wow. to 2010. Yeah, so uh, Susan's great. I really like her a lot. What happened is she announced that she is a co-founder of the brand new Naturium a few days ago on her own YouTube channel. And people were really upset because for months she's been plugging the Naturium products and has not associated herself with the brand in any way. She even got people a discount code, kind of like, oh my gosh, look at this cool brand I found. And that is a violation of the Federal Trade Commission's uh, ethics when it comes to um, advertising. So It was a little misleading, yeah. Yeah, and so basically anytime an influencer or even us, if we were were to receive a product and and we talk about it and plug it on the show, we basically have to state our affiliation. Like are we if we're connected to the brand, if we received any benefit from the brand, um, if you're an owner of a brand, that would include that. So if I started my own hair care company and I was plugging it on our show, I would have to tell you guys that because it is kind of unethical for me to uh, vouch and plug for something and then not tell you I'm profiting right. off of it at the end of the day. So, and if we ever do, if we ever do launch a brand, you will know. It. <laughs> yeah. Like we'll totally tell you guys. Cause we'll want you to buy it. Like, Hey, this is our brand. Buy it. <laughs> it's a little hard to do the way we do our show, but yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. But anyway, if we did take a sponsorship, we would tell you, Hey, here's a paid sponsorship, right? It's just kind of, right. kind of what you have to do. And so people are upset about that, and a lot of people say, eh, what's the big deal if she started a brand? Well, I mean, it's illegal, um, and it's unethical, yeah. <laughs> and she's an influencer and, and knows the rules. So anyway, She has, she, like, millions of followers, too. Yeah, yeah. So she did apologize um, to everyone, and again, Susan's a great person, and I just hope for forgiveness in all instances and in all aspects. So, um, sure. And I've heard a lot of good reviews about the products, so let's talk about them. I'm sure they're perfectly fine, Um, but let's talk about this one. (laughs) Uh, First, let's go to the question about encapsulation, okay? Um, Encapsulation is actually a technology that's been around for decades. Uh, Do you remember those scratch and sniff uh, stickers? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I mean, you were a baby, but when I was a kid in grade school, people would collect these stickers and... You know, you'd have like the bubblegum one and you could scratch the sticker and it would oh, yeah. smell like bubblegum. Yeah. Well, the way those things worked was they had fragrances encapsulated in, you know, little microscopic capsules and they were printed on the sticker. And then when you scratch them, you actually cracked open those uh, capsules and that's what created the scent. I, I mean, the, the, the scratch and sniff stickers, I just love those things. Yeah, I always thought, like, wouldn't it be cool if they also tasted the way of the flavor because usually (laughs) it's like banana scratch and sniff and they do not taste the same and i want to tell you guys that from personal experience (laughs) yes don't lick your stickers (laughs) (laughs) scratch and sniff so anyway the basic premise is that um you when you encapsulate a material you take a material and you put it into like a little vesicle a little spherical and uh, what that does is that protects it from the rest of the formula. And this is, this is uh, good for something like vitamin C because, you know, some ingredients are not compatible with other formulation ingredients. For example, if you put vitamin C in water, 
it's going to oxidize and then that vitamin C that you put in water it doesn't do anything anymore and actually a lot of products that you buy that have vitamin C unless the vitamin C is protected properly um, there's no vitamin C left by the time you buy it right you yeah once the I mean they the manufacturer could have put vitamin C in the formula but by the time it gets mixed in, it gets put into bottles, it's sitting on the shelf, uh, all that entire time it's uh, it's oxidizing. And by the time you get it back to your bathroom and you squeeze it in your hand, all the vitamin C is gone. So if you encapsulate it, the idea would be that the encapsulation is going to protect that vitamin C from the rest of the formula. And so then it's not going to break down. Or in the case of the uh, uh, Naturium products, uh, they're going with the, it's going to protect the skin claim, uh, and we're going to get to that in a, in a second. But the way I want you to think about it, think of uh, encapsulated particles as, they're kind of like these microscopic eggs. If you put the vitamin C inside that egg, and then you put that in the water, the, the water is not going to get to that vitamin C, it's not going to break it down, and your vitamin C is safe. Now... This all makes logical sense, but just remember this, and this is a good little uh, <laughs> tip to go ahead. Not just a tip, it's a perryism. <laughs> That's right. Just because something's logical doesn't mean that it's true in real life. And here are the real-world problems that I see with encapsulation. First of all, if you make your encapsulated product, if you make that shell a little bit too hard, then it doesn't break when the consumer is using the products. So in a rinse-off product, that means everything that was encapsulated, you put it on your skin, and it just rinses away. Okay, so no help there. And in leave-on products, you know, if you put that product on and you rub it into your skin, it's still encapsulated in that capsule. And if that capsule doesn't break, it never gets delivered to your skin. And eventually, you know, that just washes off too. It's like if you, uh, if, you, if you put like a grain of sand on your skin and it never breaks open, it just falls off your skin. And that's really how these encapsulated, if you've made them too hard. So the other option you can do is you can make the shells softer. Well, the problem here is if you make the encapsulated shells too soft, then the particles open up during the production process and then essentially you cracked open all of the eggs and they all just get mixed in and you're essentially left with no encapsulated material and it's pretty much the same as if you would have just dumped the ingredient in that wasn't encapsulated so the trick is to get a shell that is hard enough to survive the production process but then soft enough to open up when the consumer uses the product and in practice i always found that this is pretty much impossible, which is why encapsulation technology has not really taken off within the beauty industry in general. And to me, it's just kind of a marketing gimmick that's not going to give you know any measurable improvements in performance. If really, if big, if encapsulation worked, then all of the big companies would be using this technology. And it's really telling to me that people have not embraced this. The, there are some other challenges, and actually, I love that you bring up the whole production point because I've actually asked manufacturers of encapsulated technologies, you know, how do you know this doesn't break open in production? And they're like, yeah. 
you know, like you're asking him a question in like some foreign language, right? The other thing is um, the technology is really expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. There are some pretty great technologies where, you know, they've got it just right, where it's not too hard, not too soft, it's perfect, but it costs a lot of money. And so as a formulator, it's really hard to justify putting it in at any significant level. The other thing is these... Uh, spheres that they load up with the active um, can't always contain a lot of the active. So if you say, okay, well, the spheres cost this much money and I can afford to put in this in, but wait, at best, they're only 30% active. So I'm really only getting a fraction of this ingredient that's loaded inside. Like, why would I even use it? And I, I guess if you're talking like retinol or vitamin C that or something that needs that protection, Right, I yeah. could totally see it, but when it's just like broccoli seed oil that's encapsulated, I mean, it's like stupid. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like, oh, I'll just use broccoli seed oil and like some vitamin E or something. I don't know. And I look at it, and as far as encapsulating ingredients, so if you take like retinol, uh, one of the problems with retinol is that it is kind of irritating on the skin. And if you encapsulate the retinol the idea is that okay it's not going to be as irritating and yeah i could see that it wouldn't be as irritating pretty much because it doesn't come on the shelf and so it's not going <laughs> to yeah. expose your skin and so it's not going to work so yeah it's if you if you put retinol encapsulated retinol on your skin and it never breaks open that's of course that's not going to be as irritating yeah the other question that she asked was about photostable retinol. Um, photostable retinol is actually not a thing. However, when people say photostable retinol, what they're talking about are retinol derivatives. And there are actually photostable derivatives of retinol. One of them is retinol and formal aspartamate. Unfortunately, photostable derivatives they don't work the same as this thing that started like retinol uh, a photostable retinol does not work the same thing same way as a retinol so uh, okay they might have photostabilized their retinol but then they made it so the retinol part doesn't work so both of these things are just more marketing and uh if you couple that with all of the drama related to this launch i'm sure these are perfectly fine products uh but you know, it's it's not it's a, it would be a pass for me, but I'm quite skeptical. <laughs> yeah, Despite how not... nice she is, I, I have to say I oh, don't have man. that personal relationship, Valerie. Oh, Perry. <laughs> you know, I was talking to I was talking to my wife today because I asked her about one of the questions we were going to talk about, and I and and I go, yeah, I'm a little skeptical of that. And she goes. You're skeptical of everything. <laughs> That's why I'm on the show. I have to be the one who's like, no, but I tried it and it's great. <laughs> exactly. How about our next question? Ooh, an audio question. Hi, Beauty Brains. My name is Mary, and I have a question about exfoliation for the scalp. I have very tightly coiled um, African-American hair and I tend to wash my hair fairly infrequently so I can have buildup on my scalp sometimes. Nothing, you know, not really like a lot of dandruff, but sometimes I just feel that my scalp can use some TLC. Um, recently I've been seeing a lot of products that are 
selling themselves as scalp exfoliants. So Christophe Rabin has the purifying scalp scrub that seems to be made of sea salts. Then um, there's also uh, Drunk Elephant has one and Briogeo has one, Scalp Revival. And some of them seem to be mechanical or physical exfoliation. Others, I think the Drunk Elephant one is more of like a chemical exfoliation. And I guess my question overall is, is this really healthy for the scalp? Is it good to have either mechanical or acid-based exfoliation? And then I guess specifically for my hair texture, I'm very worried about things that can dry out my hair. So sometimes, some none of these products are specifically marketed towards black hair textures. So I'm also sort of curious about that in specific for like a tightly coiled or very curly hair texture, if this is something that I should try or if this is more so a trend that I should leave alone. Thank you. Well, Mary, excellent question. And I know we haven't actually covered this on a question per se on the show in the past, but we have talked about scalp exfoliating products before. I, yeah. I just don't recall which episode because we didn't we didn't write this in the show notes for you guys. But I, I would say you don't even Perry doesn't even have to open his mouth to answer this one. Perry, I know, is very skeptical <laughs> skeptical of this because he said that before. Um, yes. And I think he actually even pulled the wallets logical, but something just because something's logical, you know, uh, which is very true. Um, and I would say I'm like in the I don't know camp. Like, I guess it depends. Like if it's a physical exfoliator or a chemical exfoliator. I don't really think physical exfoliators help the scalp at all. I think that you can't really get a good, um, I mean, they work by abrasion, right? So I don't think right. that you can get really good motion across the hair fiber. I think also you run the risk of breaking hairs off or, um, well, and it, leaving little, leaving little particles in your hair, right? Oh my gosh. Inevitably <laughs> that will happen. Um, <laughs> just, I, just if you want, if you want to experiment with this, go get a St. Ive uh, apricot scrub and put it in your hair. <laughs> It'd be a heck of a time You'll washing see that out. Right? How terrible it is. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't like the um the products that have the physical exfoliants in it. I don't even really like salt, uh, because salt is very rough. And while the salt does dissolve in the water and eventually soften, mm -hmm. I just I'm not a believer of physical exfoliants on the hair. However, I'm am a believer in the, these chemical exfoliants, which really are alpha hydroxy acid based or polyhydroxy acid based. Think of it as like a facial for you, your scalp. When you leave these uh, chemicals on the hair, eventually the skin will start to peel away. And that's great if you have some dry skin and you want to loosen it and get it off and it will come off um, in the next shampooing. But in general, I think if you're shampooing your hair very well with a, a great cleanser, you may not need to use an exfoliator. I don't know that everyone needs to use it, but I think um, if you feel like you need it, I would definitely go the chemical exfoliant route. Yes, I think, um, you know, regarding whether or not it works for black hair textures, I, I still think you should be fine. And actually, there has been studies to show that these uh, alpha hydroxy acids even have benefit for the hair. I know glycolic acid is really pushed in our industry to help hair feel more supple, to help soften it, to help provide shine and moisture content to the hair. So going that route, you not only help your scalp, but you help your hair. So yeah, that would be so, worth trying. Again, the physical exfoliant, I probably wouldn't just because you don't want to create microabrasions on your scalp. Uh, you don't want to have the particles get stuck in there and then you're at dinner and you're like, what's this? And it's like avocado seed or whatever. You don't want that. So definitely go the chemical exfoliant route. 
I remember I was working on a leave-in conditioner when we had a really high slug of lactic acid. Yeah. Which is another alpha hydroxy acid and has some some benefit. I, I mean, we put a lot in there. I presumably there was some benefit. I, I do not. Yeah, know. I definitely like the acids for for scalp and for hair for sure. All right, next question. Our next question comes to us from Leticia on Instagram. So Leticia says, I was finally tested for allergies, and it turns out I'm allergic to linalool. I was wondering if linalool can be hidden under fragrance in a formula, or if it is not on the list of ingredients, it is for sure not in the product. Well, that is a great question. Yeah. So linalool is a fragrance allergen. So I wouldn't, as a cosmetic chemist, you know, Perry and I wouldn't take linalool and just squirt it into our formulas. It's not really an ingredient that we would use. It's actually a component in fragrances. It can be added synthetically. It occurs naturally in many, many plant extracts. So yeah, it's not only stuff, yeah. it's not only a fragrance component, but it can be found in botanical extracts. So, you know, a lot of people focus on fragrance allergens being in fragrance, and I think really the future is, and we've talked about it on the show because we have a lot of people saying, "Hey, I have an allergy to allergens uh, that are found in fragrances, and I'm trying to find fragrance-free, botanical-free." Um, several months ago, we talked about Dr. Courtney Rubin and the letter to the editor that she wrote in JAMA Dermatology saying that botanical extracts are causing all these irritations on people's skin because they're complex and they have all these allergens in them. So I feel like people get so focused on fragrances and it and it's like, no, it, they're not just in fragrances. They're also in plant extracts. So right. yeah. that being said, if you have an allergy to a fragrance allergen, I would consider not only using a fragrance-free product, but a botanical-free product as well, just to ensure you have no exposure. That's the first thing I would do. But let's say, you know, it's like Val, you know, I don't, I want to keep using botanicals. I'm totally fine with that. Um, And I'm even fine to use fragrance. I just want to know if linalool is an allergen in there. It gets a little complicated because of how we are required to label or disclose allergens in fragrances. So in the U.S., brands are not actually required, U.S. and Canada, brands are actually not required to list allergens on an ingredient label for fragrances. They're not. The reason you see it is because it's commonplace in other geographies, and most brands want to sell one product around the world, so they just do it. Or they just say it's not a big deal to do it, so we're going to do it. The EU, the EU actually requires it, um, and then what happens is if you're a big company, you're just going to adopt the, the most stringent regulations that you can because you want to you sell it everywhere. So uh, often you'll, you'll see people talk about this uh, fragrance loophole where people don't have to list all their ingredients. It is kind of a loophole. I can see it, uh, but... If you're buying products from big companies, they are going to list all of the fragrance allergens. And right now, the EU has 26 allergens that are common enough uh, that they require you to list them. And when I say common enough, uh, I think their threshold is about 4% of the population shows some sort of allergic response to these ingredients. Which is pretty high. 4% is pretty high. Which is pretty high. Yeah. I did did watch a uh, presentation uh, last year, a couple years ago maybe, um, and they were looking to expand that to over 300 ingredients. It's it's too much. Which would just be (laughs) – it would be quite amazing (laughs) – if you could see these ingredient lists, uh, I mean, one of the 
one of the benefits to consumers of this fragrance loophole, uh, everybody talks about the negatives about it, but one of the benefits is that you don't have an ingredient list that is the entire backside of your product. Because if you listed all the ingredients in a fragrance, uh, fragrances can have 50, 100, or 150 ingredients in them. Mm-hmm. How's that going to help anybody to see that many ingredients? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the key words you mentioned, um, Perry, and I actually want to elaborate a little further, is just because a fragrance contains an allergen, even in Europe, doesn't mean the brand is required to list it on their product. And that's because mm-hmm. there's a threshold. So the EU has said, okay, just because the allergen is present, yes, the allergen is a hazard, but that doesn't mean there's any risk if it's below a certain level in a product. Yeah. So they have defined a threshold for products that are rinsed off the body. And they've defined a threshold for products that are left on the body. If you were making a leave-on product like a lotion and a fragrance allergen appears above 0.001% in the formula, you're required to list the allergen. If it falls under 0.001%, you're not required to list it. So in the case of a fragrance containing linalool, linalool could still technically be present. It's just under the threshold for allergenicity. A rinse-off product has a 0.01% threshold. And Mm -hmm. so, again, if it's under 0.01%, you don't list it. If it's above, you do. So that doesn't mean they've listed all the allergens. There's kind of a limit to it. So if you're really concerned about whether or not linalool is present or not, you can't just go by the label even for a European-compliant product because there's that threshold, right? And then it would be technically in the product, but it's below the level. Yeah. Maybe it's detectable, maybe it's not. It, it depends on what the level is. Theoretically, those those lower limits are the limit at which people are not going to have a reaction, even if you are allergic to it. But that's only theoretically. You might. Correct. So therefore, for, for me, if you know that you have an, an allergic propensity towards linalool, we'll call it, I, w- I would really just avoid fragrances additionally botanicals also have allergens in them. I I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would also avoid products with botanical extracts because most brands, uh, I would say probably 99% of companies don't test for, or they don't ask their ingredient suppliers for, or they don't even look for the presence of allergens in botanicals. This is all a relatively new thing. Even for us, our toxicologists only this year has started telling us, Hey, I need, you guys need to run allergen testing for all of the botanical extracts you use uh, because they're looking for certain things. And yeah, sometimes they're present. So uh, yeah. there's currently no legal requirement for allergens and botanical extracts, but I, I predict probably there will be. So if you're really allergic, avoid fragrance and avoid botanical extracts. Yeah. Linalool specifically is in cinnamon, it's in mint, it's in coriander. Um, all of those natural extracts, if those are on there, it's probably got linalool in it. Yep. Last question. This one comes to us from Jessica. Jessica says, Hi, I own a small airbrush tanning business. I buy solutions from a few different companies. Some have an organic source of DHA and some don't. I guess my question is, can I say the ingredients are all okay to be putting on the skin for an airbrush tan? I advertise organic tans, but I know that not all the ingredients are organic or even need to be. Are there any warnings or studies that have been recently put out against spray tan solutions? Thank you so much. Well, 
Thanks for that question. There is a little bit to unpack here, and hopefully we can clear up some of the confusions. I love DHA. I love the just the chemistry of self-tanners. This is like my... If I didn't work in hair or hair color, I would probably work on self-tanners. Uh, they're just so cool. And also kind of a sick fact, I love the smell of DHA when it complexes with the skin. I love it. It smells a little bit, to me, it smells a little bit like graham crackers. <laughs> so, I, so you, it's you starchy, put this on and it's like it's, a s'more. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, it's an interesting technology. Actually, what, what I love about it is it's actually chemistry. A lot of, as a cosmetic chemist, a lot of what you're doing is you're mixing chemicals together and you hope there's no chemical reactions, <laughs> which is the opposite of being a chemist. But let's talk about what makes these spray tans work. The main ingredient in a spray tan is DHA, specifically dihydroxyacetone. Now this uh, ingredient reacts with the proteins in the outer layer of your skin and that causes them to get darker. This is actually called, a, in chemistry, this is called a Maillard reaction and it is the same kind of reaction that causes bananas to go brown. Now this is different from another compound which is also called DHA and this is docosa hexanoic acid which is an, an omega-3 fatty acid that's found in fish oil, and it's also a popular ingredient in dietary supplements. So we have two different types of DHA. There's actually a third. It's a preservative dehydroacetic acid. Oh, yes. Let's, <laughs> yeah. Let's just make it all complicated. <laughs> now, it's important to note that dehydroacetic acid and docosahexanoic acid Neither of those work as sunless tanners. They do not react with your skin protein. They do not turn it brown. And so they're not the same ingredient. They have the same initials, but they're not the same ingredient. The only DHA that turns your skin that color is dihydroxyacetone. Well, well you say brownish pear, but it could be like orangish, right? It's, it's kind of more orangey, yeah. <laughs> Actually, do you know how DHA was discovered? No. Actually, I think I think I learned this in organic chemistry in college when we talked about the Maillard reaction. But yeah. I don't I don't rem it's like vague, very vague to me. Okay, I, I only vaguely recall this, but it's interesting. There was a nurse working with children in something in Ohio. Actually, you're from Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, not that that has anything to do with anything, but I remember those two facts. Um, so she was working with these kids, and DHA is some sort of medication. So the kids would vomit this, they would take this medicine and then they would vomit and the vomit would splash up on the nurse's leg and it turned her leg brown. And that, <laughs> that sort of led to the discovery of DHA as a sunless tanner. Go figure. Child vomit. <laughs> All right, let's, so let's move on to this whole idea of organic, right? We'll move on to what organic means. In the US, the term organic does not officially apply to cosmetics, uh, at least as far as the FDA is concerned. However, the US Department of Agriculture, the USDA, they actually created organic standards for food, and then some people petitioned them and asking them about being uh, applying to cosmetics, so they made some provisions that covered cosmetics. Now, this actually seems a little bit out of their authority, but the FDA just kind of is like, 
eh, okay, we'll, we'll do whatever the USDA says. <laughs> so the FDA deferred to them. And so if you want to say that your cosmetic ingredient is, or your cosmetic product is certified organic, you have to adhere, at least in the US, to the USDA organic standards. So if you want to do that, you can, but it's actually quite hard to do that. Um, you have to control the farming, you have to get certified, and none of your ingredients can be synthetic. And while the there is that USDA certified organic version of the Dacosa hexanoic acid, the food supplement, there is not an organic version of dihydroxyacetone, that DHA. So if somebody is telling you that they have a spray tan that is organic, at least as far as the USDA is concerned, uh, they are not telling you the truth. There is no organic dihydroxyacetone. Now, I've read that some manufacturers are claiming that their products are EcoCert certified organic. And, you know, Valerie, we are a worldwide podcast. We have fans all over the world. So they might know what EcoCert is. Um, EcoCert is more, it's more of a U, EU thing, uh, but they are a non-governmental organization and they set standards for natural raw materials. Well, their organic certification doesn't qualify in the U.S., so just because EcoCert says it's organic does not mean that it's organic in the U.S. But additionally, the EcoCert certified organic DHA, that doesn't exist either. There's there's no <laughs> there's no organic certified EcoCert DHA. So companies who are claiming that they have an organic sunless tanner, uh, they're just making that up. Um, that, that's not true. As for your own question about whether you should make these claims, I don't recommend you make organic claims about your sunless tanners either. There are two problems with that. First, you could get sued. Lawyers in the United States have been making a lot of money going after people that are claiming their cosmetics are organic. Also, it, it's not true that your products are organic. Now, actually speaking from, uh, this is just an aside, but speaking from a chemist standpoint, um, organic means it's a hydrocarbon, and yeah, DHA is a hydrocarbon, it's organic. In the marketplace of selling products, you use the term organic, we don't use what chemists say as organic. We take what the market says, and the market is not saying that's organic. So, but the bottom line is, if you're trying to say your DHA is organic, uh, at least some of the sunless tanner, that would be false, and it's illegal to make false claims. So don't say your sunless tanner is organic. The other thing I want to point out about this, the ingredients in spray tans are safe. You don't have to worry about that. DHA has actually been approved by the FDA as a safe and effective ingredient when it's used externally. However, it is worth noting that technically spray tans are not a legal form for delivering DHA. While topical application has been proven safe, there's actually not enough data to conclude that internal ingestion of DHA is safe. So this, you know, includes any that you might breathe in while you're getting a mist of this stuff. <laughs> Fortunately, it's not that volatile. However, when you do like a little spray mist of DHA, it very easily could get into your uh, into your nose or, or breathe it in. Now, I will say that the FDA actually uh, has recognized that this uh, spray tan is not really technically within the law. But they did post three requirements. So if you're going to going to a place that spray tans, there are three questions that the FDA requires the person to ask. First, are the consumers protected from exposure in the entire area of the eyes, um, in addition to the eyes itself? 
are consumers protected from exposure to the lips and other parts of the body that might have a mucous membrane? And finally, are consumers protected from internal exposure caused by inhaling or ingesting the product? And the FDA says that if any of these questions, the answer is no, then you, that's an illegal product. But otherwise, if you're protecting your eyes and your your nose and such, and you can't breathe it in, then it, apparently it's perfectly okay. So that's how companies can get away with selling sunless tanners and not getting busted by the FDA. But the bottom line on this, there is no such thing as an organic sunless tanners, at least as the USDA definition. Um, I'm going to include a link to the uh, FDA stance on sunless tanners in the show notes. Wow, we talked the hell out of this show, huh? Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, if you get a chance, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Or if Spotify has uh, that, go ahead and do that there. Uh, that's going to help other people find the show. And sure, we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Incidentally, if you want to ask a question and have it answered on the Beauty Brains, just record it on your smartphone and send it by email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We love and prioritize those audio questions. You can even send an audio question or just a regular text message to us through one of our various social media accounts. As you hear, we answer those questions too. <laughs> yeah. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're just at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page, although... We don't check it that much. <laughs> I check it, Valerie. Don't, don't worry. No matter how upset I get about Facebook, I still check the Beauty Brains page. You know what, Valerie? The Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do it. This is going to help the show show keep going, and it's going to avoid those pesky advertisements that uh, I find so maddening in some of my other favorite podcasts. So if you want to keep us ad-free, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. And I just want to say thank you to all of our Patreons and especially our new Patreons. Thanks again for listening. Remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. <laughs>